decoded. Welcome to this episode of the Founder Tech Decoded podcast. In this series four, we continue talking to exited founders who have different perspectives on what that means. We've been trying to unpack what an exit founder looks like, behaves like, orientates, and why it's not always this sort of big uh, unicorn exit and can mean many uh, different things. So in this episode of the podcast, I'm delighted to talk to Drew Rogers, who is an exited founder of an online language learning marketplace matching professionals and academic learners with tutors. Now, she's the interim head of ops, facilitating the handover and transition, post-acquisition, encompassing operations, change management, strategic planning, training, project delivery, and support, right? which is quite a lot. Drew, uh, <laughs> welcome, welcome to the podcast. Um, it's a real pleasure to kind of have you on the podcast and share your journey, I guess, towards an exited founder. Um, I know you have a slightly different take on it and, and, and where you've arrived at. So m- maybe you can uh, share your story with us. Sure. Thanks for having me on, Dan. Pleasure. Um, Like you said, I exited my company, My Language Lab. This happened in the summer, August 2022. And I'm currently heading up the operations team there. So just making sure that they have my guidance and support post-acquisition. So I thought perhaps I would start by telling my story, which really begins in Tanzania, where I was born. I moved to London with my family when I was around five or six and I didn't speak a a word of English apart from a little bit that we learned at school and it was quite a rough transition actually so you know I just remember arriving in in the city and wondering where I was and why we were here and um, we settled quite quickly into the, the British way of life so joining the local school, um, improving language skills, joining the guides in the local church and so on. So really started to assimilate into our new surroundings. And one of the reasons we actually moved to the UK from, from East Africa was for the education. My grandfather had always said he wanted us to be educated in the UK. And I found myself having to have tuition lessons in in maths and English to be able to pass an entrance exam. So it was this this school that my family really wanted me to to learn at. And I took an entrance exam. I was awarded a scholarship, luckily. And this was where my love of languages really grew. You know, I come from an, an Indian background and the traditional route to careers is it tends to be sort of professional services. So law, um, being a doctor, a dentist, optician, working in finance, accountancy and so forth. But I realized that I wanted to do something very different and it was orientated towards languages. So I ended up studying at university. I was the first in, in my immediate family to study at university. I did European languages, uh, European studies with languages and spent the year abroad. But I ended up being drawn into the city. So I've worked for Thompson Financial, currently uh, Reuters and Citigroup, doing business analysis and research. But I realized actually that that wasn't the life that I wanted for myself. And during this time, I always had a side hustle. You know, those days where perhaps we didn't have so many side hustles or portfolio careers. I know it's a term that we use a lot these days. What did you but, call um, it then? Just as an because <laughs> it, it wasn't called, a, what was it called? Like a part-time job or something? Yeah, it was something that I was doing on the side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and yeah. now, you know, now everyone's doing a, a side hustle. Everyone has a side hustle. And it's not frowned upon as well. So you can work full-time in a company and also nurture a side hustle, yeah. have a portfolio, portfolio career. So I found myself in this, this strange position where I could have gone towards that position in the city, travelled all over the world, but I knew that I wanted to work for myself. And I had a stint working in a couple of research companies and language schools. And one day I realised as I was teaching Spanish to English learners that 
I couldn't teach any more students in my spare time. So I put an ad out in the newsagent, which is what we did <laughs> all those years ago. And I started you mean working an actual along. paper ad in the and, window. Correct. An yeah. actual paper <laughs> ad. <laughs> and it was the newsagent down the road where I lived. And someone answered it. She was Spanish and she really wanted to teach her native language. So we started teaching, funnily enough, in a library. So again, libraries were, <laughs> were really well utilised. I still love libraries. It's a shame that, they, that they're closing down these days, aren't they? But mm. we started teaching in there. We just have a little table in the corner. And the business actually grew very organically because it was easier for us to advertise. I had a little website. I think it was a landing page, really. And we used all the keywords, Spanish tutor, Cardiff. I was living in Cardiff at that time. And we were actually number one on Google. So if anyone wanted Spanish lessons, we were number one on Google just because we utilized all the keywords in the domain name, right. which doesn't really work these days, but it did. Um, and the business grew through word of mouth, um, Google Maps, you know, sticking up ads wherever we, we could, flyering as well. So really on the ground level marketing. And we were lucky enough, and I say we, the business really, and the, the team that I had at that time, they're all self-employed freelancers, self-employed tutors. We were lucky enough to be approached by Admiral, which is Wales's only PLC, a listed company and we had a really great relationship so not only were we teaching b2c learners exam learners but we then started opening up to b2b companies and that really allowed us to have that logo on our website and then slowly expand to other b2b companies Truth, can I just sort of ask what can you give us a timeline here because we're not you know I've got I've got kind of we might be in the 90s of the ad in the in the news agent but where are we now in terms of timing this was as I was teaching and it was something that was really not my full-time job at that time we incorporated in 2014 and that's when I guess I would say I took the business more seriously because we were working with these b2b companies so at this point, I had a few tutors that were working alongside me and we moved into actual premises. So this was a physical location where we were holding face-to-face -face classes. And bit by bit, the business grew. I wanted to move back to London. So I decided to set up and replicate the exact formula that we had in Cardiff in London. And grew the business very very sort of organically hiring tutors as soon as one tutor was busy with their schedule and they couldn't take on any more students I then hired another so we didn't have any outside investment actually it, the whole business was completely bootstrapped lean tried to reduce our monthly fixed costs you know sort of working from co-working spaces hiring freelancers developers from Upwork using no-code websites and low-cost apps as well and this enables me to keep the costs low but then to grow at a steady pace and we grew the team with more tutors they were working eventually online we knew that that was the direction the business would head in anyway we were actually using Skype at that time but then Covid happened and then everyone started using Zoom so we grew sort of fairly organically. It was just myself as a solo founder. And eventually COVID was the turning point where I decided that I wanted to niche. So at that time, my language lab was called the Spanish Academy. We were dealing specifically with multiple languages as well as just Spanish but I decided to rebrand and called it my language lab and focus primarily on academic students purely because of what was happening with COVID. There were numerous requests for extra support and guidance for exam learners. So these were K-12 learners. So students who were taking English, French, Spanish at school 
and they were really suffering because they weren't achieving the grades that they were accustomed to achieving. They didn't have that support. They had lots of knowledge gaps in their language learning. And we saw an increased adoption for students that were learning online as well. So this was a point for us, actually, a huge turning point for us, where we decided to niche and focus specifically on academic learners. We continue to teach sort of the B2C learners, those that had holiday homes abroad, those that were learning languages to improve their communication skills and just for fun, and also the B2B. But we actually rebranded, we had a new website, we changed our marketing message, we changed our, our content, our offering, and we decided to, to go ahead with the academic learning side of things. And what was the rebranding through? So we called it My Language Lab. My Language Lab. Correct. We called it My Language Lab. We got the trademarks in. We added on bolt-on services such as marking lessons, preparing students with mock exams, offering CV workshops and interview skills workshops, and also guiding students through internships, university life, mock exams. So our message was, was a lot clearer. And I felt that we could add more value are you still running it at, at this time with freelancers? Are so still running it very lean? Is it, or have you started to kind of employ more people? Or what's the structure at this at this inflection point? Sure. As it was COVID, we were still very very lean. We continue to hire developers and, and work on a contractual basis by Upwork and Guru and and Fiverr and so forth. And also, likewise, on the tutoring side of things because. Tutoring is an unregulated industry, so anyone can actually set themselves up as a tutor on, on multiple platforms. And we were hiring tutors who wanted to be able to have that level of flexibility. And we wanted to work with that as well, because this allows us to retain tutors. The, the best tutors actually didn't want to just work for one company because it's quite rare for tutors to work with just one company you would, you know, essentially they would need to be working a minimum of 25 to 30 hours a week. And then you've got your homework time and your preparation time and marking and so on. So for us to be able to retain the top tutors, those that worked at the United Nations, those that translated for Netflix, those that worked at Eton, we needed to be able to give them that flexibility. So because we were able to niche to academic learners, it was really obvious what we did. And so tutors were drawn to our offering. It was easier for us to be able to implement stable pay grades for them. We could guarantee that they would have committed students because the academic year is about 39 weeks approximately per year. And once you start a student during that academic year, at the beginning of the academic year or, or in the middle of the academic year, they would continue learning right up until exam day. So it's very predictable for us, but also for the tutor. And also they were more aligned with our company mission because everything was geared towards improving the student grades and making sure that they had that support and then parents were happier as well. So tutors weren't just teaching students the, the one or two hourly sessions a week. It was about guiding and providing more of an insight into the exam, into different career options. They almost acted as mentors as well. So it was a win-win situation on the student side and also on the tutor side. So we continued with that, that lean operation and we then ensured we had less turnover with, with tutors. We had a more aligned team vision we were able to predict our turnover as well and, and, and timetables and all the practicality of things. So there are numerous reasons really why we decided to, to niche towards academic. And do you think, well, COVID's come up a, a, a few times, but the, I think it's quite dominant in your story. Do you think that with without the pandemic and without the changing conditions your business would be in a different place possibly i knew that everyone wanted 
to, especially the tutors, actually, they were geared towards preparing themselves for teaching online. And, you know, if, if you think about the preparation that a tutor needs to do when they're teaching a class, it's more than just that instruction for yeah. one hour, yeah. one and a half hours or so. It's the travel back and forth, especially if you're in London, it's carrying the printouts and the laptops and the resources. And tutors want to be working as generally as much as they possibly can. They want to maximize that time. So especially when we had the, the centre in London, we were actually hiring uh, office space and classroom space. I found that not only did it affect the bottom line, but it was harder for tutors to be able to fit in as many hours as they possibly could. And if you also add into that, if you're teaching sort of after work, you only have a window of, of, of three hours or so, four hours yeah. or so. yeah. And so I could see that change was looming ahead, but COVID definitely accelerated that. So even though there was some resistance, we had some some learners that we actually lost because they wanted to continue with that face-to-face interaction. For them, it was more of a hobby. It was a social aspect to meeting up with their tutor, being away from the workplace, being away from the home and physically going somewhere and learning and absorbing that information for an hour. But we knew that it was heading this way. So I'm glad actually that what we had intended to happen actually happened at that time. Obviously, you know, there was a lot of fallout during COVID. Um, It was a worrying time. It was a stressful time, especially when you are a bootstrap business and you're a solo founder. And we definitely had to think of initiatives where we could continue engaging the learner. And this would mean holding free classes, um, making sure that we're there if they have any guidance outside of the, the teaching time. And we actually invested quite a lot into different services that we were offering because essentially we were productizing a service because we went from physically teaching classes to offering one-to-one courses online but then also offering self-paced e-learning courses and also sort of the, the recording courses and workshops and events and things such as um, you know sort of the, these extra products that we were offering to support students as they were heading into the workplace or preparing for work experience internships and and their first job and, and, and going to, to university so it really helped me to be able to think like a product tech founder, which up until that point, I really hadn't been, been doing because it was all sort of service, consultancy, agency based. Yeah. So I've got a couple of questions that sort of like go either side of, um, I guess, the pandemic is like, you know, it sounds like the fact that you'd engineered the business in terms of its structure and shape to be so agile and lean meant that when those conditions changed, arise, whichever way you want to look at it, you, you were able, you know, like you were perfectly able to adapt, whereas a lot of businesses had to go through that learning curve to it to get to that point where you already were. And then, so my question is, is, is uh, do you recognize that that, that, that that was the case? And then the other side of that is then how, if, if a business stays lean in that way, how did you manage to steer it towards an exit um if it, if it did stay in that kind of relatively agile structure um if, if they if the if the, per, the acquirer wasn't buying you know a, a team of 40 people in one place you know all, all turning up every day it'd be good to understand how you exit with an agile team great question and you're quite right when you have a lean company you can make decisions very very quickly so I had actually a 24-point plan. I took this. <laughs> it sounds so specific. <laughs> but I took this from Daniel Priestley's yeah, he's come book, up from, 24 he's Assets. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, 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 and also at, at the time, I was, was really loving Built to Sell by John Worlow and yeah. Emit Revisited. So you know for, for me i'm I'm very much a, an automation processes systems yeah. driven person yeah and you know when when you 
are a, a solo founder, when you are managing all the different elements of, of the business, even before you can outsource it, you need to have all of these generalist skills across these, across these disciplines. And so I started to weave together and change some of the apps and software that we were using to create a turnkey operation. And I work through all of these different uh, 24 points on my checklist because this was about digitizing and creating assets of everything that we had. So it was changing the, the service business into something that was more or less product-based. And that's when I improved uh, our SOPs. I added a knowledge base and support center for the tutor training side of things, and students automated a lot of the end-to-end -end user journeys for the registration, the onboarding, feedback and check-ins, and also with monthly memberships. So the monthly memberships were something that we hadn't trialed before. So alongside the one-to-one -one tuition, which is what we were known for, I also implemented group sessions. And these would take place every week for an hour. And these would be lower price points for students and, and, and parents that couldn't afford the one-to-one -one pricing. So this allows us to have these bolt-on services and almost sort of, you know, get into the MRR and ARR. You know, these were terms that I wasn't really using before, these sort of turnover and revenue and, sure. and, and, and so forth. But I started thinking more like a, a tech founder, a tech company would do. And ticking off these things on, on the checklist, meant that we were more saleable. It meant that the turnkey operation we had was very much a company that someone could purchase and bolt on to their existing company. So we were specifically focusing on languages yeah. and academic learners. So this would be a business that would you know, sort of bolt on to an existing larger company that wanted to gain access and, and increase their market share in this specific space. So an English language learning school, for example. So I always had that end vision in, in mind. And, and actually at the beginning of, of COVID, someone in my network approached me and they had expressed an interest in having that conversation that could lead to an acquisition. And at that time, I wasn't ready just because we were making these changes and I wasn't quite sure when I wanted to exit. And after having it, it took a little bit of um, you know, had some brainstorming sessions. I went abroad, came back, and I decided that that this is what I wanted to do. And I worked from an endpoint, and I created the the, the products in in terms of in sort of implementing an LMS platform. So this was one platform where students and tutors would meet and hold lessons. You'd be able to see the calendar. Uh, messages, there's digital reporting, there's quarterly reports so that students and parents could see the areas that their their, their children were in, improving on and where they needed to, to do extra work. So one of the things that was really important to the exit was having that LMS platform. So this is a, a central hub where Tutors would schedule lessons for students and you'd be able to see the calendar, the lesson notes, um, all the recordings and the different resources. Students would be able to submit their homework and they would be able to see their marks. We'd be able to produce reports and parents can check in and see how their child is getting on and, and, and you know, participate in the community. So this platform was really central in terms of being a sort of a core product in the business and everything then was was built around it so that's yeah. when we would be able to have the uh, sort of the digital marketing the content the the sort of the, the renewals you'd be able to see the packages and this would mean that everyone was a lot more invested because they were utilizing the platform on on, on a daily basis so as I started working towards these different points that automated the business, it became a, a more attractive proposition 
for this this acquirer because we then resumed talks about a year later and I said to her I'm 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 ready I think it would be good for us to have a conversation and see see where this can go and one of the things that was important when it came to having this conversation was I needed to know that we were aligned and I had already had a couple of you know, sort of networking meetings with her so we were part of the same circle and she had a great operation of a physical centre in England and also in France and we always got on well because we shared our learnings and, and troubleshooted with each other so we had an idea of what each other did before we had this conversation about a possible acquisition and I spoke to her about the, the niching and what we had implemented over the last year, kind of clients that we had, the students, because throughout this time, we also had the B2B clients. So we were still offering our services to upskill employees in FTSE 100 companies that so we, we were working with. Uh, uh, Royal Mail, football clubs, HBO, Disney, Sky, Amazon Prime, uh, insure, insure tech companies, insurance companies. So we still had this running in the background. And she liked the fact that it was a, a business that focused on academic, but also had the B2B running in the background. And we also had aligned values. So even though we had tried to productize as much as we could at My Language Lab, we also emphasized customer service you know we I would often pick up the phone and do things sort of the, you know the old-fashioned way and check in with parents and check in with tutors so having this sort of feedback co collecting reviews you know really listening to what tutors wanted really listening to what students and parents wanted so we still had that connection and this aligned very much with what she was doing in in her company and we signed the NDA, we looked through the, the figures and she could see that we were increasing, you know, revenues year on year, our net profit was increasing, the average spend per user was increasing, as was the average markup per unit sold, so we classify a unit as an hour. And looking through the metrics of the conversion rate and so forth, alongside the fact that our student grades were improving as well. So, you know, if, if I can remember correctly, it was around 94%, 95% of our GCSE students achieved 97 grades. All of our A-level students achieved uh, A-star to, to B grades. And they, they were able to access their top choice universities. You know, we had five-star Google social media reviews. We had an NPS score of, of 83. So, she could see that the work that we had done over the last year that enabled us to achieve to reach that point was was attractive to her and it complemented what she was doing because she was focusing on English learning, French learning, Spanish learning, but it was more the B2B side and the B2C side. So this was an area that she and I say she she was the, she's the founder and CEO, but she had a, a you know a fairly large team actually and she was able to see how the business would slot in with with what they have and what their long-term vision was can, can i ask and a direct so, question about that the, the, sure. if um what's so fascinating about hearing the whole journey like uh, up to this point and thank you for sharing it in the way that you have because i think what what you're describing is you're like you know there's this need that you know or, or awareness around the value of language as a child you know where she's just acutely apparent to you and you sort of gradually you don't you're not someone who sort of sets out to be a founder you know an exit and an expert you gradually sort of seem to morph into this role and, and it becomes like the, you get to like the pointy end of it like i said you, like what i loved is um you 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 sort of said like a year out of, of the exit you started to work towards the end point and i've written down assets analytics and automation you know it's kind of these things start to kick in but my question had been, and, and then you're building the relationship with the person that acquires you and you think is aligned. If that person wasn't aligned to 
the overall, let's say, macro goal of genuinely, you know, increasing the the well-being, but also the grades of students around language, would you have sold it to that person? Would you allow them to acquire you if you actually felt they just were sort of buying it for just the analytics or for to, to do something kind of maybe, you know, a, a, a lower level of kind of um, achievement, if you see what I mean? Would, would, would that have been a problem for you? Possibly, actually, because, (laughs) (laughs) and and the reason I say that is when I was looking at the potential acquirer, in my mind, it was someone that understood languages. Because with languages, sometimes it's hard to measure how well a learner is doing. You have benchmarks and 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 of course you know in terms of the academic learners it's it's far easier do they get an a a star b or with gcse's nine eight or seven because it's a higher tier grade but also when it comes to b2b learners it's a little bit more difficult to measure we were helping employees and companies, usually C-suite levels, so CMOs, CFOs, CTOs, CEOs, with their language learning skills. And they were able to, I guess, measure it because they were involved in, say, half a billion dollar acquisitions, or they were involved in presenting at marketing conferences. So this was really to upskill their English skills, uh, English um, capabilities. And they were able to measure it in that way. But when you are packaging up a business for sale, you also have to include these stories and that value when we are involved in auditing processes and and collating information and presentations that that employee would then bring to their heads of department and that company would then go on to be sold for half a billion. You know, it's, it's sort of encapsulating that. You can't really do that in figures. So with languages, there's a lot of qualitative data and, and, and information that you have to translate, forgive the pun, but you have to translate that in um, a deck that I'm then presenting to the possible acquirer. So the fact that this person was able to understand the language learning journey because she had gone through a very similar thing when she came to this country and didn't speak English because French is her first language. Right. We really resonated with that. Of course, yeah. And I didn't have to explain every single thing in yeah. terms of this is the, the overview of the, of the business. She understood, for example, that summer would be a bit of a quieter period for us because, it, it, you know, students wouldn't be learning. They're off on their holidays and parents are away. So she didn't need that justification when I'm adding in here, you know, we had a little bit of a quieter month in, in August because people were away and tutors were on holiday as well. So she understood that. And if I had sold to someone who perhaps didn't understand the language industry or what it takes to learn a second language and, and go through that whole process, either personally or professionally, then perhaps it would have been a little bit of a, a, a harder set. It would have been a bit more transactional. So don't get me wrong, of course, it was a transactional sale, course, but yeah. language learning is also emotive because we were really changing people's lives when when they were upskilling, you know, yeah. improved their career prospects. They were able to get into university. They were able to get that yeah, job that they tangible. wanted yeah, yeah. And, and migrate abroad. So I think having that in the background really helped facilitate the conversation that we had because she just, you know, she got it. So what? So what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna just use two or three slides in the switch deck because the story is is so fascinating. It's not one we've heard in that way before. But what? Just just literally picking up on what you just said. Essentially, what you're saying is that on a founder market fit level, you know, where you both intuitively understood the problem, there was the resonation of 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 that founder market fit before any. Obviously, what you what you you're also describing a story from founder market fit 
to product market fit. You know, when you're starting to talk to about, you know, things like MPS or ARR or, you know, that you actually, and then when you look, were looking to exit the business, those metrics started to be meaningful and that actually, I'm sure, drove the value of the sale. But actually what's so interesting is that your acquirer and it's something that, like as I said, never has come up with. Like when you when you exit, maybe there should be, maybe you get more value if if the two parties or the principles of the two parties are resonating on a founder market fit level, which is, it sounds like is where you started, and then you moved obviously to evaluating it through the lenses of product market fit. Does that does that sound about right? Absolutely, it it does because for a start, I didn't advertise the business on, on the open market. Yeah. You know, for example, I, I, I um, actually had a property business uh, years ago. I, I still sort of do a little bit of property at the moment, but um, I had a, used to have a lettings agency and was involved in uh, all of those processes. And it's easy, for example, when you're selling a property, you, you go to Rightmove, Zoopla, you do all of your research and you choose your local agent and then it's on the market. But with a business, it's it's a lot more problematic because you don't want to make it public when you are intending to sell. And so for me, it was more about let's look at the persona and the profile of the the, the person, the team, the company that would purchase my company. What are their values what is it that they're looking for is it going to be a lifestyle business for them is it going to be a bolt-on business you know how can my language lab fit in with with what their vision is and what they're currently doing will they be able to, to afford the business you know what is their, their range what is their budget so there were a lot of different factors that i took into it and actually the first thing that i did was look at my network and this specific individual was at the top of top of my list because I did have a list of um of different you know potential acquirers and it felt right because of the conversations that we had had before completely unrelated to company acquisitions so when we had met up at networking events before we 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 got on we shared you know, sort of similar problems, similar issues within the language learning industry, within the tutoring industry. And we had a fairly open open relationship. You know, we were able to talk about you know, how much do you charge clients and so forth. You know, this is something, something you don't often have that open conversation. And because of that, I knew that she would be the profile or the ideal profile for someone to take my language lab to that that next level just because of the resources that she had and the investment that she would be able to to bring and the the size of the team that she had as well and also the regions that she operated in it's so interesting it's i i honestly have never heard it as a thought that you know when you're looking to sell your business you know yes it's yes it's the product market fit metrics that drive the value but actually if you're having that conversation where that's aligned around a founder market fit you're probably going to get a higher value and you're going to get a wider context and more nuanced understanding and and the relationship's going to go better and there's going to be more trust um it's which, which sort of leads to another aspect of the switch there which is this idea of like actually when you're dealing with a investor or an acquirer the you shouldn't be you know if whenever there's sort of an asymmetric relationship of i'm the acquirer i'm the investor i know more than you you owe me a favor that that's actually very old school and should you know that is there's that that you actually smart founders are moving away from those kinds of dialogues and around that as well that, that you know the founders are looking for much more open um, um open investment style and approach the concept that comes up all the time is like founders would look much rather like, you know value a fast no than a slow yes there's too many slow yeses in this ecosystem which eke out and and drag out and kind of then eventually often deteriorate we're leaving both parties well certainly the founder feeling exhausted do you i, I guess your story is again is, is sort of emblematic of that like that, that if there had been that asymmetry and it'd be, it would have been a very different kind of conversation around the exit it, yes i i think so because i think because we both had a similar background in terms of how we started within the language learning industry and we were also up against 
competitors who had raised, you know, sort of upwards of five, 10, 15, yeah. $20 million. So we knew that instead of us driving our prices down to the bottom, you know, which we, which we didn't obviously want to do, that we had to have that extra value. We had to have that relationship with our tutors, students, parents, and clients that was more than just, okay, you know, we offer a cheap price and let's saturate the market with cheaper tutors and, and so forth. Let's increase our marketing and, and, and paid ad spend and then we'll, we'll grow that way. So we were very aligned in terms of the benefits of partnership. So my language lab are on various employee benefits platforms. Um, we have collaborations with academic institutions, colleges, and so forth, and also in 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 with in, with, with regards to adding value before we then increased our prices. So we were on the same level in terms of our, our pricing, actually, and the offerings that we presented to to our end user. And if we if I had entertain conversations with acquirers that perhaps were maybe you know your typical tech company that had a far greater structure had yeah. a higher volume of learners uh, platform users and, and tutors and so forth and you're talking here in the thousands the conversation obviously w would have been very very different and even though that they would have had that infrastructure I did think about the level of customer service and sort of how the customer success would, would play out if we were absorbed into such huge companies. So that was a, another reason, actually, when I was having this conversation with the acquirer that, you know, it was about let's maintain these partnerships. Let's continue adding value here. It wasn't just about the pricing. It wasn't just about, okay, yeah. you know, you've got a huge, huge system and would I be better off sending the business to that type of acquirer? Because it, it can happen, you know, you, you, you've got a, a very fragmented industry with tutoring. So you've got a lot of individual tutors and so forth and very small companies and then the mid-sized mid, mid companies as well. And they are a good fit. They, they are good acquisitions for the larger tech players because you've got a database of students and you've got those relationships that are already there but it can be a risky sale as well so I was mindful of that during this process. Yeah it's also what's interesting, so interesting about your journey and unless I've misunderstood it you really haven't touched the venture landscape at all you haven't gone for outside investment doesn't sound like there's angel maybe there's the odd angel investor but it doesn't sound like that that part and you've yet uh, managed to uh, reach uh, an exit. It sounds that quite rightly so. You're proud of, like it was a good exit. It made you know you felt good about it, and it happened at the right time, or maybe sort of the right time. As as much as these things can ever be aligned, and 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 you know, there's no at that time, like you're saying, there's no outside party kind of trying to leverage or lever it in ways that you're uncomfortable. It sounds like you've had that experience, but that hasn't just come to you. You've, you've, you've nurtured that, um, which is quite interesting to hear an exited story outside of the traditional ecosystem. And you, are you, you must have friends and peers who are founders in that ecosystem. Are you grateful that that's the case? Like when you do look at them and think, wow, that's kind of tough. Yes. I, I know quite a few tech founders who the, the problems that they face in terms of scaling, decision-making, accountability is very different to the problems that I faced, albeit on a different level, that you have more access to resources and, and support, I guess. We're hearing a lot about bootstrapping and lean startups and investors and, and, and VCs and so forth saying, you know, let's, let's focus on increased profitability um, we're, we're hearing about down rounds at the moment, you know, cost of living and all of these different factors is something for me personally, where I think, well, shouldn't that be the case anyway? Shouldn't a business be operating on profit? 
so I've learned it, I guess, the hard way. Outrageous. You know, I, I, it's an outrageous yeah. thing to say. What are you talking about? People have exactly. fallen over now. They're like, profit? Exactly. And this is the, the way that I've always operated the business. You know, I've never been able to reach out and say, okay, you know, we're, we're going through a patch at the moment where seasonality, you know, um, or COVID, for example, I was able to to lean on and, and have a drawdown fund where I could access those funds. So, you know, you do really learn about different marketing strategies, learn about referrals, you learn about adding value. You can't just chuck a load of money towards paid ads. You know, you're talking thousands and hundreds of thousands as, as our competitors were doing. So it has taught me a lot in terms of how you can grow and, and scale and reduce churn, increase retention and all those sort of different, different skills, I guess, um, that ultimately you do need regardless which type of business you have. And who knows how I will fund the next venture? You know, I'm, I'm sure it would be a, a combination of, of, of different sources and so forth. But I think that my experience at, at my language lab has definitely enabled me to utilize certain certain sort of methods that I will bring into the next venture. And you know, there's there's a lot to be said for companies that are growing this way. You know, typical sort of thing. You know, reducing their fixed costs and not chucking things at you know these these great fancy offices and you know um employing for example fractional staff using no code website platforms and you know the mm. array of apps that we have that can allow the business to to run really well you know you, you sometimes don't need to be spending so much money on on xyz um so i definitely take those learnings into into the next venture yeah um you know, lot, lots of people, there is obviously this mantra about no code, low code and keeping it lean agile, as you say, um, which I subscribe to, but very few people actually sort of adhere to it as a business practice that yields profit. Um, it's more sort of, you know, used as when you're starting something, you now don't need to basically show an MVP. It's generally what it's what it's referring to. And as a last kind of question um, around that, um, one of the ideas that come has come up is that actually the really good opportunities, and I think your story bears this out, sort of start pre-product, you know, like, so that if you're, if you're an investor or an angel investor listening to this and you kind of like, you know, you're relying on your, in your funnel for something to arrive in a pitch deck fully formed, that actually the most interesting things are, are, are kind of gestating earlier and the most interesting founders are kind of, have been on that journey from from pre-product and are actually catching them, you know, and supporting them in that way is potentially um, where maybe the where may, where maybe the hardest challenges are being solved and addressed because of the founders at that stage are really are relying on their founder market fit. They're passionate about the problem. Do you r relate to that? Like, if again, if you if you would have come to this and just thought this is a market opportunity, I'm going to raise a bunch of money and try and tackle it, it would have been a very very different story, obviously, but. What, what do you think of that as a, as a question? I think that's what investors and, and VCs want to see, though, because, you know, raising raising investment sort of pre-seed and, and even seed sometimes is, you know, it, these days it's, it's a lot more problematic. It's a lot more difficult. You know, you have to have some traction. You know, you have to have people signed up on your waiting list. You've got to have some users there. And you know, our, our, when 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 I first started, you know, things were definitely really scrappy. There was a lot of things, even when when we niched towards academic learners, there was a lot there that looked like it was, you know, a lot more higher tech, I guess. But actually, behind the scenes, we were doing manually until we figured out how to automate it and streamline that process. And that's definitely what I would do again. For, for the next venture and you know I, I from what I read on Twitter and, and LinkedIn and YouTube and so forth that's what founders are doing you know they're, they're having something that is a lot more sort of scrappy 
Um, they're figuring it out as they go along. They're doing a, a lot more research, a lot more testing, and they're going to investors to say, look, you know, we, we've got you know, 500 people using this. We're in a position now where we can prove that something is, that this is working and we want to take it to that next level and this is what we need now. So I think that access also to, to starting a new business uh, and, you know, whatever that business might be, where it's just purely sort of, you know, content creation, it's, it's product, it's marketplace. It's a lot easier with the technology that we have. And you do have to go back to those basic skills. Yeah, um, I, I think I think you should give yourself a bit more credit, though, because even though that's the hypothesis and there are a lot of founders practicing that, there aren't many that have gone through the arc to where you've gone to and have embodied it. I just don't hear that. I've, this is the first time in fact that I've heard the full arc literally come from your childhood to kind of this and, and embodying that approach. It, it, it's it's kind of um, thrown out there as like this is the methodology, but it's um, it, it's very, very hard to do. It's very hard to do well. It's like it's very hard to corral a freelance staff in the way that you have and get them aligned. It's very, very, it sounds easy, um, but it's very, very difficult, you know, working from the end point, you know, towards of where you wanted to be and working backwards. All of those things, which I'm a massive advocate of, and lots of people are a massive advocate of, you know, lots of very smart investors absolutely believe that's the right approach now you know you don't do not unless you're in kind of some deep tech med tech where you need the innovation you know to kind of and the capital to even begin to solve it this is the way you start you just don't hear many um of those kind of i said like embodied stories so i think you should give yourself a bit more credit than uh, maybe you are uh, or maybe you are to give yourself that credit but, but um but i think it's deserved because they're they're that there, certainly on this podcast there hasn't been a story like that so uh, and i'm and, and i'm really aware of, uh, now of time so i but uh, yeah that I, it's really it's been really really valuable um to hear this perspective um because i think there will be a lot of people listening to this going i would like to behave like that i would like to do what drew did and i can relate to that story I'd like to end up at that end point. I'd like to find a require like that. And to hear that is, is, is great. So I'll throw the floor to you as I, I try and do at the end of every episode. Like if there's anything that any, anybody you'd like to talk to, anything around the next venture, you know, anything you'd like to say. We obviously put the show notes in with some contact details and things like that. But is there anything at all that you'd kind of like to throw out there as a last thought? Actually, what I would love to do is just, connect with with more of your listeners really so you can find me on linkedin uh drew rogers that's d-r-e-w-r-o-g-e-r-s so drew rogers uk and also on twitter so i'd love to be able to to connect with with your listeners um and i'm happy to to reply to to dms and if anyone wants to reach out to discuss further and and just should we finish on are you looking for any investment at all for the next one um or you're not there yet or you might not ever get there do you do you have that in just in case anyone's listening and thinks i really like what drew, drew did there i'd love to be part of the next one or is are you just not at that line yet no i am approaching that line um so it'd be great if anyone would want to reach out and connect yeah, just to kind of be, be part of that loop and story as it Definitely. evolves. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Drew, for your time and sharing all that. It's been absolutely brilliant, really, really fascinating. And uh, yeah, thank you for your time. Thanks, Dan.